Welcome to the Difference Makers podcast presented by Waterproof. I'm your host, Justin Tamani. In this podcast, you'll hear from some of the top coaches, brand managers, and athletes on earth. From starting out to where they are now, we'll explore the journey of how they became a difference maker. Before we keep going, do us a favor, hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform to hear more from the Difference Makers. All right, guys, we are live. This is the Difference Makers podcast. I'm your host, Justin Tamani. Today, we have with us Liz Suter. Liz is a Harvard and Columbia grad. She's a former Division I rower with Harvard. She is also the former Director of Athlete Services with U.S. Rowing and currently a sport manager with the World Rowing Federation. So welcome, Liz. Thanks for having me. So that's a that's a big resume right there. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how you you got involved with US rowing and the World Rowing Federation. Give me a little bit about your your background here. Yeah, sure. Um as you said I was a rower for a long time. I rowed in university and after I graduated from university, I decided that I didn't want to keep rowing. In the United States, women's rowing is really, really competitive. And um, for me, it felt like the options were to continue rowing at a, at a very elite level in either a really competitive club or trying to make maybe the Canadian national team or stepping away from the sport. Um, it didn't feel like at the time there should be a middle ground just because I was training at such a high level. It would have felt strange to step away and sort of row recreationally. So um, I took a step back from the sport and ended up just through my connections in the sport, um, meeting the people at U.S. Rowing. And they at the time were looking for someone to work in their national team department to uh, manage athlete services, work with the national team rowers, um, handle things like their uniform, health insurance, trips, things like that. Uh, so it was my first job out of university, and it was a great experience. Um, it was a very small organization. I think people think, you know, the Olympic team is managed by hundreds and hundreds of people, and it's really not. Uh, there were three of us managing the entire national rowing team program. Um, but it was a great experience. I was there for, for six years. And through that experience um, and through traveling to events internationally, I also made connections at the World Rowing Federation. And in 2018, I was, I was ready for a new challenge. And I was lucky that the World Rowing Federation had an opportunity for me to, to go over there. So I've been there for about almost three years now. Amazing. So with the U.S. rowing team, we'll just start there. Tell me a little bit about what you did to to help the program, to move the program along, to help the athletes. Give me a little bit about that. Sure. So I think it's important to understand I was in a very sort of managerial and administrative role. And it, I learned pretty early that nothing I did would make the athletes go faster. I wasn't a coach. I wasn't like a sports scientist. Um, nothing I did would make them go faster, but me not doing my job properly could impact their performance and make them go slower. So I really tried to focus on making sure that when they were training or when they were traveling internationally, they could be in a position to just focus on competing and they could be in a position to just focus on themselves. Uh, professional athletes do have to be quite selfish in a way. They have to be able to turn off all of the outside distractions and just focus on their game and just focus on their sport. So when you're supporting professional athletes, you need to, you need to really allow them to do that and creating an environment for them to be able to do that is really important. So I would be doing really anything that, that fit that bill, um, planning trips, dealing with international visas, air travel, uh, booking their accommodations, dealing with transportation on site once they arrive to events. Um, in advance of international travel, we had a whole selection process where athletes were selected to compete internationally. And that would involve uh, dip running different competitions and regattas to select those athletes. So I would support the, the operations of those regattas dealing with their parents who want to come watch them internationally and selling them tickets, um, any crises that popped up, you know, if an athlete gets sick in a foreign country or, um, you know, slips and falls and you have to take them to a, a Polish emergency room. I, I really have like a laundry list of strange 
weird experiences that uh, I've had to deal with internationally. Um, but really, like at the end of the day, the whole the whole goal was to support Team USA and support the U.S. rowers to to just allow them to to do their best on race day. Now, as a Canadian, was it a little conflict of interest to uh, work with the U.S. rowing team? It's. I think a lot of people are surprised when I tell them that I'm Canadian, but I was managing the U.S. team because, um, yeah, they think there's some kind of conflict of interest. I mean, so many in sports, so many coaches come from other countries um, and they go where the job is. And I think as a sport administrator, it's the same thing. Of course, it like it would be an amazing experience to work with the Canadian Olympic team. And I definitely have a lot of patriotism towards Canada. But I got to know the U.S. team pretty well. And I have a lot of dear friends who are, are rowers on the U.S. team. And once you kind of make those personal connections, you just want to support them like for the people that they are and not necessarily for the passports that they hold. Definitely. So, no, I don't think there was many like major <laughs> conflicts of interest. I always wondered about that. Yeah. <laughs> With your uh, your current position with the World Rowing Federation, you guys have have done a lot to diversify the sport of rowing in the past in the, in the past couple of years, and I think that you had a big part to do with that. Um, I know that you guys introduced the World Urban Games in 2019. What was the explain to me the format and and what you guys were trying to achieve with the World Urban Games and how that contributed to. Um, rowing and the u.s or sorry the uh, world organization yeah i think to kind of take take a step back it's important to understand that there's different kinds of rowing so my personal experience and as a rower and also managing the u.s team was very much focused on sort of traditional collegiate olympic style rowing these long skinny boats that row on flat water um, now working at, at World Rowing, I uh, focus on actually all of the disciplines of rowing that are not Olympic rowing. So I, I oversee indoor rowing, uh, which is using the rowing machine, what, what you do at a CrossFit gym. Uh, coastal rowing, which is like fatter boats on the ocean and you're sort of dealing with wind and waves and Paralympic rowing. So I deal with the, the non-Olympic disciplines of rowing at World Rowing. And uh, with indoor rowing, there's a huge opportunity to engage people who didn't grow up rowing in a in the traditional discipline. So people who didn't join a rowing club at a young age or start rowing in university. Um, indoor rowing is something that is really accessible and people can use an indoor rowing machine at their gym or at their CrossFit box. And it's kind of like weightlifting. You know, you might get introduced to the sport at your CrossFit gym and then decide, oh, I, I actually really like this, you know, I, I really like this training tool or I really like this modality and I, I want to dabble in it a little bit more. And as world rowing, our mission is to grow the sport of rowing in any way, shape or form internationally. And so for us, there's a huge opportunity there to, to bring in that person that finds the rowing machine at their local gym and say, hey, you know, you should you should you should dip your toe in this. You should try to compete internationally or compete locally or regionally. Um, I think with that and with that goal, we need to do our job as world rowing to, to update the competitive format of indoor rowing. I think a lot of people maybe aren't familiar with indoor rowing competitions, but they're traditionally a very sort of standard format. They're 2000 meters. There are some that also do 500 meters, but essentially it's 2000 meters. You show up, you row 2000 meters, and then you're ranked based on your fastest time. And the 2K is a brutal test of fitness. Don't get me wrong, it's but <laughs> it's horrible. If you've done one, you know, it's, it's really brutal, but like any sport, if it's, if it's repeatable, um, if it's repeatable to that degree, then it, it's not so interesting to watch or to compete in because you can kind of predict going into the event, who's going to do well, you know, competitors can convict, can predict within fractions of a second how they're going to do and um 2000 meters is also the distance that on water rowers train for their whole lives so there's a huge bias towards those athletes the more sort of traditional on water rowers doing really well in indoor competitions and that might discourage some people who don't come from that background to want to compete in indoor rowing so one thing we're looking at is how can we change the race format or how can we 
open up the race format so that it levels the playing field a little bit and it gives, you know, the average athlete, not just the average rower, a better chance at succeeding in indoor rowing. And and that was something that we tested at the World Urban Games. Um, the World Urban Games was a new event, a multi-sport event that was held in Budapest in 2019. And their goal was really to bring sport into the city and um, and showcase, you know, sports that are not in the Olympic Games that are maybe really easy for someone to pick up or really accessible uh, they wanted to engage kids. They wanted to engage young people. And indoor rowing was lucky enough to be selected as a showcase sport in the World Urban Games. So nice. when we were thinking of how to present indoor rowing, we really tried to do something different and not just row 2K and have everyone you know, get up after six or seven minutes and wipe their hands and leave. But we tried to do a, a more interesting format. We had, I think, six events over the course of three days. And all the athletes that competed got to race in six completely different events. Each event was testing different skills, different modalities. And, um, and then at the end of the day, it was the, sort of the overall win winner, the master of the machine. Um, and that was, that was really cool. And in, in that event, we did get a, a mix of rugby players, rowers, crossfitters, you know, cyclists, people that came from all different walks of life and all different sports competing and, and doing really well. Now let's be honest. Was one of those events the fish game? <laughs> we didn't do the fish game, although I'm not opposed to it. I like. I think it would be a really cool. Um, it would be a really cool event to do. I think when you, whenever you're trying to change a format that's so ingrained in history, and like rowing is a very traditional sport, it has a long history behind it. It's the oldest collegiate sport in the world, I think. Okay. Um, and world rowing is the oldest international federation of all the international federations. So there's like a whole, you know, historical piece that goes into rowing. Um, it's definitely difficult to be someone who wants to make a difference and who wants to mix things up and shake things up because you have people who are very married to the traditional idea of how the sport should be done. Yeah. So I think like, I know you were saying this as a joke with the fish game, but yeah. it's something that like, it would be cool to do that at one point, but you need to get the buy-in from all these traditionalists and people who love the way it is now to see your vision and to love your vision so that eventually you can kind of branch into doing crazier, more, <laughs> more interesting things like the fish game. <laughs> I, I love the fish game on the rower, but uh, if for people who don't know, we're talking about the concept too. Rowers have this this game built in called the fish game. It's fun. I like it a lot. <laughs> but I, I 100% understand what you're saying. With those events that you picked for the the urban games for rowing, what what events did you do? Because I mean, I can get an idea of some of them, but um, give me a give me a little look at what you guys chose and and potentially why you chose some of them. So we tried to choose really anything that was not a traditional 2K. Like we looked at what we do normally in events and then we tried to get as far away from that as we could um, within the confines of what was like logistically possible. And I think a whole element of sport of indoor rowing competitions that people might not recognize is um, there's a whole sort of timing. There's a whole timing element of it. So we worked with a timing company and they were able to pull the data out of the machine and then kind of graphically show it on a big screen. And that's, right. you know, relatively straightforward to do if you're doing a straight distance race like a 2K or a 500 meter. But once you start to add different variables into that, you really need to have a company that's able to do custom graphics um, and, and able to show those results in a way that makes sense to an audience but they need to create all of that from scratch. So we worked with an yeah. amazing um, timing company that was able to, to allow us to do these crazy formats. So I can give you a couple of examples. Um, we did one that was, uh, we actually had an Instagram vote on the World Rowing Official Instagram account where we said the first event will be a 6K, so six kilometers. The athletes yeah. either have will have a rate cap of 14 strokes per minute. So they can't take more than 14 strokes per minute, or they will have a rate floor of 36 strokes per minute. So they can't take any fewer strokes than 36 strokes per minute. And for people who aren't like familiar with rowing, I'll say that a rate of 14 is uncomfortably slow. Yeah. 
and a rate of 36 is uncomfortably high. And 6K is, it's not short, you know, it's like you're getting into the sort of mid 20 minutes, 20 minute um, timing. So to be uncomfortably slow or uncomfortably high for that long is, is not ideal. Um, and it was right at the cusp of like where you would feel comfortable rowing. So I think we had like 52% vote for the rate cap of 14 strokes per minute. So the athletes basically rode 6k and they were taking about one stroke every like six seconds. <laughs> so they take That's a stroke, so and come back really slowly. And it was uncomfortable for, especially the traditional rowers struggled a lot with that event. They were super uncomfortable with it versus the CrossFitters who are used to maybe doing some more explosive lifts and they're not so like their, their muscle memory isn't so connected to rowing at like a smooth, consistent pace, like someone who trains on the rowing machine their whole life. The CrossFitters actually did really well sticking to the cap. And, and what we had to do is if you went over a rate 14, you got like a, a penalty, a two second penalty added onto your time at the end. Um, so all of the traditional rowers had like, you know, a minute of penalties and the CrossFitters had like four seconds, five seconds of penalties. So it was really interesting to watch. That's a, that's a very interesting event. Like that is, like you said, it, it's uncomfortably slow to go 14. Totally. Like, most, especially, uh, I mean, most people who have been on rowers before don't even think about their stroke rate. Most, most CrossFitters and, and kind of the average person just goes. Yeah. It's like anything, right? It's, it's like, if you went on a run, you don't think about, you know, how quickly am I touching my feet down to the ground? You know, what's my running rate? And obviously as you get sort of become more sports specific, that is something you would think about. But, um, but it was interesting uh, just to see how the different athletes and the backgrounds that they came from, how that affected their ability to, to take on these events. I'll, I'll give you an example of another event we did, which was hands down my favorite one to watch. But um, we did one event. So we had eight athletes competing at the same time. Um, and we did a 35-minute event. So 35-minute row. And every five minutes, we reset the meters that they'd rode to zero. So every five minutes, the meters that they'd rode would go back to zero. And whoever had rode the least number of meters in that five minutes was eliminated. So what you saw were these athletes who were kind of kind of coasting. You know, they, they didn't want to go too hard for the first, like, three minutes of the five-minute increment. And then the last two minutes, they'd start to look around and see the other guys picking it up. And so they would accelerate and just to not be last. And so the goal every five minutes was to not be the slowest in that five minutes. But of course, wow. if, if you went, you know, full out, um, you emptied the gas tank on the first five minutes, it didn't give you an advantage going to the second five minutes because the counter reset to zero. So you had to kind of game it. You didn't want to be first and tire yourself out, but you didn't want to be last. You wanted to be somewhere in the middle and as people got eliminated, that became harder and harder and harder to do. And that event was so fun to watch. I mean, people were glued to the stage for 35 minutes, which is a long event, watching these athletes try to tick each other off one by one. That's pretty awesome. And yeah. so it wasn't cumulative. So you each section had to row. So what were what were guys or what were athletes, male or female, averaging for that five minute? If you can you remember? I can't remember, but I mean, again, like the averaging, you know, didn't really matter. I would say probably the, the women were, were going pretty easy in the first three minutes, like maybe, maybe a 155, um, very sort of base cadence pace for them. And a lot of them were just looking at what is everyone else pulling and I'll pull that, you know, I don't want to be too fast. I don't want to be too far ahead of them. So I'll just pull what they're pulling. So they'd probably coast around like a 155 for the first three minutes. And then at the end, they would just do whatever they had to do to not be last. So we we saw people dipping into the 130s, sprinting down into 130s, high 120s. Um, but again, it, it was entirely dependent on, on what other rowers are doing. So like in a 2K, and as, as someone who comes from a very traditional rowing background, you're sort of taught, you go in with your race plan. You don't let other people influence your race plan. You row your race, you keep your head in the boat. Like these are all very sort of traditional yeah. rowing expressions. 
Um, and you're really trying to max your effort out. So you can't allow yourself to be influenced by other people because it will mess up your race plan. You'll go too fast, too soon, that kind of thing. Um, so that's a very like sort of traditional approach. So this event was intended to put those traditional rowers in a situation where they had to rely on the information that they were getting from other people. Um, they couldn't go too fast at the beginning, but then they had to go too fast at the end of the five minutes. Uh, and so it was kind of meant to, to mess with their minds a little bit and, and get them to look around and see what everyone else was pulling. Introducing the Wadproof Experience, designed to help you perform better than ever and stay focused on your goals. Unlock the power of our global community, become a content creator, and inspire others. You can now create your own communities or connect with other members worldwide. Compete and share your knowledge with our new user-centric design. When when they were looking around, were they able to see the screens of the other rowers, or was it the data that was displayed on the uh, kind of the the main board, the broadcasting? Exactly. So that's why it was so important to have this timing company working with us because they were able to create like custom graphics for the spectators, but also for the athletes to see so that the athletes could see where everybody else was, what splits everybody else was pulling throughout. Um, and sort of, they could see a little boat tracker moving across the screen and they could see <laughs> if they were in first or in last or in the middle. That's awesome. Yeah. And then did so you said you didn't have a 2K in that event. So you had other, uh, were, the, were there any straight, single distance rows or were they all kind of creative events like what, what you've already mentioned? So we tried to do everything pretty creatively. Like the 6K was a straight distance event, but right. it had this sort of huge variable thrown into it. Um, we did halfway through the weekend, we did a, a 10K team row and we took the top two men and the, uh, the top male, the top female, the bottom male and the bottom female and put them on a team. And then we did sort of two, two, seven, seven on a team three, three, six, six to try and have evenly stacked teams. And these athletes did a 10 K relay, but they had to switch every 250 meters. So again, that's a straight distance, but, um, but the transitions and how you switch between your teammates is so important because 250 meters, you know, it's like a minute, it's less than a minute. So it, it, yes, you have to row fast and hard in that one minute, but your transitions are so important um, yeah. because there's like 40 transitions, uh, in that event. And that was really fun to get them to step into a team setting in the middle of an individual competition. We also did, um, an elimination periods or pyramid. So we did, I think they had to row like 800 meters head to head, and then they, you know, would knock each other out 800 meters, 600 meters, 400 meters or something like that. Um, so we did, you, you, there's only so much you can do, right? Like yeah. We didn't want to add any sort of functional fitness elements into it, like jump, you know, burpees over a rower kind of thing, because we did mm -hmm. want to stay to stick to rowing and stick to what we know. But we wanted to show that there's so many different ways to train on the rowing machine and also different ways to compete. Um, we did one event, which was sort of our homage to the 2K. We did a six minute max effort row, which for a male athlete, six minutes is about, you know, about a 2k, except we covered the screen. So the athletes couldn't see where they were. They could only see how much time they had left. And so it was basically a six minute max row. And the, the rower, the male rower that won that event, he's actually a Canadian guy um, named Jason Marshall. He's a former, I think he's a former rugby player. And now he's, you know, like a legend when it comes to any of the concept two machines. Um, but he won that event. And I remember thinking that, you know, it's crazy that a non-traditional rower won what is sort of the closest to a 2k yeah. event. Um, and I think the reason that he won is just because he was more comfortable not knowing where he was. He was more comfortable going into a challenge blind. Whereas, as I said, a rower has a very, you know, a very carved out plan of how they're going to attack a piece. And when you take out their ability to see their splits or, or see their stroke rate, uh, you know, they might struggle and they might not be comfortable with that, that discomfort. That's, that's interesting that it wasn't a rower that won or it wasn't a traditional rower that won that event. Yeah. 
I would have thought that it would be a traditional rower. They could just kind of put his head down and go. Yeah, so. I think on the women's side, it was a traditional rower. It was the women's world record holder at the time. And she was pretty hard to beat in every event. Okay. She was she was sort of above and beyond, um, ahead, ahead above the other female competitors. But on the men's side, the top two guys I remember were pretty close. And the winner, Jason Marshall, I remember he broke 2K. So he actually rode a sub six-minute 2K. Oh, wow blind which is a huge accomplishment and i don't know yeah. if he's if he's rode a sub 6 2k before that um i'm sure he had but you know it's like it, it was a, it was a really interesting event to see because these guys had no idea where they were they you know they thought they were at their max effort but they could have only been at 80% because they couldn't see their splits so it was uh it was really cool to kind of throw that variable in there and, and see how they dealt with it that's really cool um, would you say that some of the people who are traditional rowers continue their career with some of the indoor and, and, you know, some of the, the events on the concept two after they're done on the water or are, are athletes competing who are still also competing in traditional rowing on the water? So we do have a big master's rowing community, uh, both on the water and on the rowing machine. I think the thing with rowing is it's such a great fitness tool. Um, you know, there's a reason that it's one of the few machines that's in a CrossFit box. It's just such an incredible tool of fitness and it's also very low impact. So as you get older, uh, it's easier to row versus something like running where you, you know, you might struggle with the impact of running. Uh, so we do see a lot of rowers who, who finish rowing and they'll say, Oh, I'm, I'm never rowing again. It's too hard. It's too painful. <laughs> And then maybe yeah. after a couple of years, they come back to it because they just realize it's, it's such a great way to stay in shape. Um, and maybe they like the community element of, as well, especially if they're competing in a club. So we do see some, some rowers who finish rowing sort of competitively or in university and then go on to row at the master's level or, or sort of recreationally. But I think for those rowers as well, you know, if, if you want rowing to become a lifetime sport, to have the only modality in, in competition be a 2k is quite boring. I mean, yeah. many rowers will row for decades. And if you're racing a 2k every single year, time and time again, and that's your, the only thing you're training for, you know, we, we you might have some people who fall off and just say, yeah, I, I peaked in, in college. I'm never going to get faster than I was. So I'm not so interested in this sport anymore. And if you give people an opportunity to compete in different formats um, number one, it forces them to go to competitions because it's not something they can recreate at home. You know, you can't recreate uh, some of those formats that we did at the World Urban Games. You can't recreate those at home. So you need to yeah. be at the event to, to actually have that experience. And your ranking isn't based on just your sheer time. It's, it's dependent on where you fell in the field that day. So I think it's also a way to even mixing up the formats, even though traditional rowers may not like be in favor of it right away. I do think in the long run, it's going to keep them coming back to the sport because it's going to keep it interesting and fun. I couldn't agree more. I feel like that, that adds a lot to the diversity and it makes it more interesting to watch. Like now that you're saying those events, I'm like, Oh, that would be interesting to see. I'd never want to do them. I would not do well, <laughs> but they'd be really interesting to watch. Yeah. Um, and I think you'd see different, you know, different athletes from different backgrounds doing well in one event and maybe struggling in another. And that also makes great storytelling. And from this, you know, uh, the, the standpoint of, of working at a federation and wanting to, to showcase the sport, we need good stories. You know, we can't have yeah. the same, the same guy wins the world championships again, and he <laughs> wins it at the same speed again. You, you want to be able to say, you know, Justin was really strong in the short sort of sprinty wads, but now we're going to see him in these longer distances or we're going to see him trying to cool his rate and does he blow up? And I think that those, those just make such better stories for us to, to kind of help grow the community. Definitely does. Um, I know you had a big part to do with this and you also had a big part to do with the change to make it a virtual rowing championship or uh sorry virtual yeah rowing world championship last year so what was the i mean obviously there's reasons why you didn't do it in person um i think we all know about that but 
how did you make that change to make it virtual? And then what kind of events do you do at the virtual? Were you able to implement some of the things that you guys had, had experimented with at the world urban games? So the virtual, um, the world ring virtual indoor championships was, we had actually been talking pre COVID about adding like a virtual competition opportunity or adding a way for people to compete from home, but there was no, sort of pressing urgency to implement it in 2021. So it's, it's something that, you know, we've been speaking with concept two about doing um, very, very lightly. And then of course, uh, after COVID kind of took over the world, it was a pretty easy decision to convert that event to a virtual event um, because number one, we hadn't identified a host for the 2021 world during indoor championships so we were actually about to go out and try to find a host for the event. And we thought, this is too risky. No one's going to want to bid on an event when it may not happen in, in a year's time, which it definitely wouldn't have happened. So I'm glad that we proceeded the way that we did. Uh, so, so number one, we didn't have a host. And number two, we were seeing so many events being canceled or postponed left, right, and center. We just thought, there. let's not take the risk. Let's be proactive in planning a virtual event as opposed to reactive where, you know, maybe we find out in six months that actually we need to plan this and we've missed all our time. So I think in April of 2020, we made the decision to host the 2021 world Ring indoor championships virtually. And it was a big challenge. We'd never done it before. Um, we, uh, we also typically the, the way that international federations work is, we contract organizing committees in different cities around the world to run the events. Yeah. And then we have event managers who basically work with the organizing committees to help the delivery of the event. So we're not running the event ourselves. We're not doing the, the you know, the admin, the logistics. Um, it's really the organizing committee that does that. So I think the first challenge for us was we became an organizing committee which is not something that no. we normally do. And it was a lot of work. So if you, if you are on an organizing committee for an event, then, um, you know, we really appreciate the work that you do because we, we had to experience it ourselves a little bit. So that was the first thing. Um, the second thing is because we were trying to connect hundreds of people from around the world in real time, virtually, uh, we were sort of at the mercy of their internet connections and their, laptops and iPhones and, you know, had they updated the firmware on their rowing machines. And we were really at the mercy of like the user errors that could happen. Yeah. And that was something that because of that, we wanted to keep it simple. We didn't want to do these crazy formats um, and throw another thing into the mix. So we, we did stick with a more sort of traditional race format. Uh, we had two uh, K's we had, um, 500 meters. We had a 60 minute row as well. And we okay. did what's called a team test, which was sort of the virtual relay. It was like three, four people on a team would row max meters for three minutes. Um, so those were the four different uh, okay. formats that we had. And um, in 2022, we will have a virtual option, but we will also have a physical in-person competition in Hamburg, Germany, and so that will be a new challenge. You know, we've done in-person, we've done virtual, and in 2022, we will try to merge them together and do a hybrid event where people racing in Germany will race, you know, someone from their basement in Sri Lanka in real time, and that will be its own challenge. That'll be really cool to see. Yeah. Kind well, like, I, think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you guys will be good. That'll be cool to see the the cross comparison there. Like, I think people still travel for events and people still want to travel for events, but then it gives people the option who can't or are restricted for whatever reason, uh, the opportunity to still compete. A hundred percent. I think that's, that's why we did it. I think people want to compete at events and, you know, something you can't always recreate virtually is that those experiences like entering the competition floor or getting dressed, you know, in the changing room and high-fiving your competitor or, you know, whatever, helping somebody out. And, and just that community experience is really hard to recreate virtually. So we didn't want to just have a virtual event if a physical in-person event was possible. But number one, we recognize that 
you know, there are different places in the world that are still really struggling with COVID and will not be able to travel to the event. And number two is, you know, for some, for, for depending on where the event is and where the competitor is coming from, it's a massive expense to fly somewhere just to race 2000 meters. Um, 100%. And it's not a great value proposition, you know, for some, we have a, a competitor uh, in Singapore named Jeremy Tan and, Jeremy, I think, told me he competed in Paris in 2020 at the World Rowing Indoor Championships. And I think he said something like the, the whole trip cost him almost $10,000, you know, to fly from Singapore to get hotel for a couple of nights for him and, and probably a, a supporter. Um, you know, the entry fee to the event is is not expensive. It's only like 30 euros or something like this. But for him to actually go all the way there just to race 2,000 meters is a huge financial commitment. And you just think how many more people in the world might participate or might be inclined to participate if they could do it from home or if they could do it from their CrossFit gym. Oh, 100%. Especially, I think, if you get into that CrossFitter market, CrossFitter that just wants to pull on that uh, that chain really hard for you know 2K, you can get some guys that can compete. Totally. I think there's a huge opportunity for for CrossFitters to, to really upset the indoor rowing sort of leaderboards. And I think the, the beauty of, of hopping into a new sport and sort of testing out where you are is that you don't necessarily have a lot of expectations of where you should be. So, you know, they, they might not know that they're going really fast uh, because yeah. they, they don't necessarily keep up with who in the world is breaking records or, or what is sort of the going splits for, for guys or girls their age. Yeah. So you don't have expectations and you might actually surprise yourself and do pretty well. I might be mistaken, but didn't Sam Briggs set one of the world records for indoor rowing? Yeah, she set, uh, I think it was like a Master's 500 record? meter lightweight yeah. in her age group. Um, and, you know, especially the shorter distances, we see a lot of CrossFitters or even like strongmen um, yeah. that, are, that are breaking world records. And, uh, and, and that's exactly it, right? Like you change the, the stimulus of the workout and then all of a sudden you see, you know, oh, that's not a rower. That's a person who's never stepped in a boat and probably will never step in a boat who's doing really well. Yeah. yeah. I remember watching, uh, I think it was Brian Shaw set some yeah. world record for like 100 meters. 200, yeah. Like max 200, 250 meters or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy to watch these guys. I mean, you think some of them might actually rip the chain off of the arc because they're right. so strong. But um, but yeah, it's it's really cool to see different people that that kind of get interested in in trying to break a world record on a rowing machine. Yeah, um, because you guys are on the machine so much, you rely pretty heavily on Concept Two to support you, the organization. How does that partnership work? Like. It, it, I mean, you're relying really heavily on on a not like a manufacturer or like a boat manufacturer, but on a company who who specializes in these pieces of equipment. How, totally. do you, how does that relationship work between the organization and and Concept Two? It's, I mean, Concept Two are amazing. They're they're the first of all, they're the presenting sponsor of the World Rowing Indoor Championships, so they support that event um, every year. And even before they were the presenting sponsorship, they were the the machine that was used every year at the World Championships. Um, I would say Concept Two is probably the the machine that's used most often by traditional rowers, but also non traditional rowers. Um, yeah. It's it's sort of also the prevailing manufacturer that you see in CrossFit gyms. Uh, there are very few very few boxes that have other brands of machine. And they, it's really interesting, actually, if you've, you know, you haven't heard the story of Concept2, um, definitely go on YouTube and try to find some videos, but they almost created the, the concept of indoor rowing competitions. Yeah. I think it was in, um, in Boston in the 70s or the 80s, some rowers at Harvard actually said, you know, it's too cold to train outside and we're, we're bored with training and we want to throw together a little competition on the rowing machines. And so it was, you know, they were rowed on concept twos and it was really rowers in the community that just decided, you know, we want to compete on these machines. And, and they created this, this whole legacy, which is now like a very viable 
international internationally competed sport. Um, we have a great relationship with Concept2. Uh, they support us in our events, not just our indoor events, but they also provide rowing machines at our on-water events for things like warming up and cooling down and for athletes to train on on the side. Um, they are very supportive of us, you know, testing out the waters with new, uh, new formats, new format ideas. Actually, the elimination race, um, the one where every, every five minutes somebody was eliminated, yep. I'm pretty sure that idea came from, um, from one of the, the guys that works at Concept2, Alex Dunn. And, um, and so, you know, they're very open to seeing where indoor rowing can go. And I think that in that sense, we have a great relationship with them because we align in our goals. You know, they, they want indoor rowing to be something that's really accessible and, and really widely recognized and understood by the fitness community. And we want that as well because it is a type of rowing. And if it's, if it's rowing, then we want to support it and we want to cultivate that ecosystem. It's, it's definitely a challenge because concept two is not the only rowing indoor rowing machine manufacturer. There are other manufacturers um, in the world. Uh, there's, I don't know how many there are there. I mean, there are hundreds. Uh, if you go on Amazon, you can buy a rowing machine for like a yeah. hundred bucks. Um, so we have relationships with other manufacturers as well. And I think that's, you know, for us really important to recognize that our goal is to grow the sport of rowing. And so we, we want to support manufacturers, different manufacturers to, to help us do that. But definitely with concept two, um, we have a special relationship with them just because of how they've, how they've helped to develop the discipline of indoor rowing and how much support they've put into, to us and to our events as well. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, they're just, they're also just really great people. <laughs> they're really great people to work with and uh, it's, awesome. a great, it's a great business. So yeah, we love them. Awesome. <laughs> um, you just got back from Tokyo as well. I did. Yeah. I'm so still you were there with like, the Paralympics. on Tokyo time. Yes. <laughs> so you're there with the Paralympics. Yes. Um, how do you support that event is it different than supporting what you did with the U S rowing team going to the Olympics prior to that? How does that work with, uh, you know, all the different disciplines that you're dealing with, with the Paralympics as opposed to just the, uh, um, kind of the conventional Olympics. Yeah. So definitely a different role, uh, in Tokyo than I've had previously with the U S team, um, with the U S team, I was really the manager. So I was the one, you know, making sure that the athletes got from the village to the venue warmed up to their boats on the water, to the start line. Um, I was the one making sure that, you know, they had their meal tickets for the day and, and really handling a lot of the logistics for a small group of athletes. Um, for world rowing, I'm sort of the strategic manager for para rowing. So I work with um, what we call a commission. It's a group of people who are sort of nominated from all over the world who are experts in para rowing. And I work with them to help develop a strategy to grow para rowing and then um, implement that strategy with our events team, with our operations, marketing, communications team. So, uh, you know, in Tokyo, I was doing really anything that, that needed to, to be done. I was helping out our communications team, writing articles and getting quotes at the, in the mix zone at the finish area. Um, I was helping the world rowing event manager who was responsible for the Paralympics. So obviously there was a whole layer of protocols that had to be added to the games uh, as it related to COVID. And so I was... I was there to support him if he needed any sort of COVID support. Uh, but we were, we were actually really lucky. We didn't have any positive cases uh, with the rowing group in Tokyo. So on that awesome. front, I didn't have very much to do. Um, <laughs> and we also had to do classification uh, for some athletes, which I don't, uh, every parasport has classification process. Essentially, it's the process by which athletes are assessed and then sort of categorized in the different groups um, based on their ability as it relates to that sport. So, you know, we'll take an athlete with a physical impairment, for example, um, run a classification session with them where they're, they have a couple of medical tests and they also do some testing on the ERG. And then two classifiers will say, okay, you know, 
based on what your, your function is on the rowing machine, we think that you should be in this category. And then they'll compete against other athletes that have a similar function, similar rowing function. Um, and every sport has their own classification system. So, so we had to do some classifications at the games. Um, and I supported the classifiers as well to, to process those athletes, uh, because nor- normally we wouldn't classify at the games, but again, we had yeah. no events in the last year and a half. So we had to, to do some last minute ones in Tokyo. That's kind of crazy that you had to do it on the spot in Tokyo. And then I guess the classification, does that take place prior to competition or are they, yeah, they, so it, takes, it takes place the day before, um, competition and it, it is crazy. It's in a sort of a normal, like a world championships or a world cup. We always have classification at events. Um, and it usually happens a day or two before competition, but at the Paralympic games, uh, normally classification is not permitted. So athletes need to get classified at a previous event, but because we didn't have very many opportunities, um, before the Paralympics for athletes to get classified, you know, we had, we had to offer it. Um, we, ha- we got an exemption from the international Paralympic committee to be able to offer classification to some athletes, but you're right that yeah. normally we wouldn't do that, uh, at the Paralympic games, Okay. but yeah, it's, it's stressful, right? Because athletes could think that they're one sport class, one sort of category, and then yeah. be classified into something different. Um, it doesn't happen as often as you might think because, we're able to sort of look at their medical documentation in advance. And we always try to, you know, be proactive. If someone might be a borderline case, we try to let them know in advance or get more information so we can help them prepare and help them plan. But uh, the classification process is really important. And it's, you know, it's one of the, the sort of very important fundamental pillars of Paralympic sport, because it's what, evens the playing field as much as possible in, in Paralympic sport. So it's really important to kind of create a fair, a fair environment for athletes to compete in. Definitely is. I think it's so cool that what you do and, and how you're involved with the sport and, and trying to progress it. Now you have, you're also CrossFit coach part-time. Yeah. I, right. yeah, I coach in the mornings right. at a gym in Switzerland. Okay. Now, has that influenced how you're trying to diversify rowing at all and implement that? Like, cause I know you've done CrossFit for a while. Has that impacted it or has that been something that the world rowing federation has been trying to do for a while now with the, the indoor championships and, and different competitions? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, CrossFit is definitely something that I'm really passionate about just as an athlete and, and as a coach and I'm also a big fan. You know, I love watching CrossFit competitions. I love watching like people work out in my gym or, or watching the games. And I think that applying what I like about those things to something like indoor rowing, for example, where, you know, it's a great concept to have multiple different formats um, and have athletes test out different formats. And then it's the overall points winner. That's a really great concept. And that's definitely something that, you know, I, I wanted to, bring that in. And and that inspiration came from CrossFit. So, um, I do think that it gives me a different perspective, uh, and it gives me an idea on how can we make this interesting to sort of a wider group of people. Um, I would say that's sort of the one area that it crosses over is that it it gives me a lot of inspiration and a lot of new ideas. I, I think the other sort of interesting parallel is that CrossFit is definitely also going through an ex- exercise themselves to try and diversify the sport and, um, you know, improve their inclusion improve the, the diversity across. I would say that in terms of gender equity, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, I I've always felt very, you know, respected as a female coach and as a female athlete in CrossFit. Um, but in terms of diversity and inclusion, I think both rowing and CrossFit have a ways to go. And so it's, it's cool to see both of those organizations going on that journey at the same time. Um, one, obviously, that's a lot newer and one that yeah. has this sort of massive history behind it and, and see how both, um, both organizations try to move forward as it relates to diversity and inclusion. So I think it's, it's interesting um, to be reading about some of the, the things that CrossFit is doing to try and improve their diversity and, and think if that could be something that's applied 
to rowing or to indoor rowing. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think generally it just gives me like an appreciation for the different kinds of athletes that we have. Um, you know, CrossFit is infinitely adaptable, so it's a great sport for adaptive and para athletes. And I also get to work with para rowers very regularly. So it's really interesting to kind of see some of the para rowers cross training that they do on the side um, and the warmups that they do and think, huh, that would be a great way to actually adapt, you know, a workout that we do in the CrossFit gym for, for an athlete that I have. So, you know, I, I, there's not a ton of crossover like in practice day to day, but definitely inspirationally it's, it's there. Right on. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time before we wrap it up where can everybody find you where can everybody find out more about the uh world rowing federation or some of the indoor events you guys have or sorry live events you have live or virtual events you guys have coming up soon so um our instagram handle is world rowing official and you can also go to our website worldrowing.com um you know i'm not definitely not an influencer but my instagram handle is liz Suter. And, uh, and if you, if you follow world rowing, the world rowing website or the world rowing Instagram account, you'll definitely get information about, um, upcoming indoor rowing events. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time. And, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank Justin. You. With the Wadproof pro experience, you'll get instant access to training programs from some of the best coaches on the planet from full training programs in the gym and at home to movement specific programs for weightlifting, gymnastics, engine, endurance, rowing, and more. We have a program that is designed for your needs, whether you are a beginner or a pro. Every training session introduces a series of questions. Am I happy with my performance? Where could I have gone faster? When will I be ready to go again? For Wadproof Pro athletes, also this question. What can I learn from that workout? With a Wadproof Pro subscription, you gain access to a complete training toolbox. From a full-featured exercise log, to side-by-side -side comparisons, to the ability to record your heart rate right alongside your rounds and reps. You have at your fingertips everything you need to learn, to make progress, and to go into tomorrow's training more prepared than today's. The best athletes are the best students. And with your Wadproof Pro subscription, you will have in your pocket the education you need to elevate your training and uncover the many lessons that every single workout offers you. Subscribe today so you can get better tomorrow.